All right, my guest today is um, Andrew Un. He is the director of Daniel Prayer Garden in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, yes, Andy, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do there? What the heck is a prayer garden? All of that. <laughs> yeah, uh, first and foremost, man, it's it's awesome. Uh, very thankful to be on this podcast with you, Dennis. Um, yeah, so uh, so I am the director of Daniel's Prayer Garden. Uh, we are a house of prayer here in Alpharetta, Georgia. Uh, in Korean, uh, you would know this as a kido one, uh, so really translated as a prayer garden. But yeah, in essence, our story is um, my grandfather, uh, Elder Un, started Daniel Prayer Garden in 1992, uh, really with a bedrock kind of foundation of Isaiah 56-7, that it would be a house of prayer uh, for all nations. And so my grandfather really, really faithfully served and really labored um, and served the body of Christ here in Atlanta and even in the Southeast and beyond for a, a solid 28 years. And in 2018, my wife and I officially um, came in and took over uh, leadership of the House of Prayer. And so, yeah, we've been in a really unique journey for the last two years of really holding on to the legacy and the inheritance of what has been passed down to us. Uh, but also really connecting it with the present generation now and, you know, just kind of updating some of the things that we do and, and the ways that we go about it. But yeah, at the end of the day, we are a house of prayer. Uh, there is a community uh, called the Garden Church um, that is at the house of prayer. And so we also uh, shepherd a community there as well. And really kind of what we do on a, on a week-to-week, uh, you know, day-to-day basis is there'll be a variety of kind of prayer meetings going on, um, serving our community uh, on a week-to-week basis. And then we have different type of uh, prayer facilities, you know, small prayer huts. Um, some people come by and they think they, that they're like, oh, do hobbits live there? <laughs> it looks <laughs> I've like seen, a little... I've seen those prayer huts. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> it looks like a little hobbit village. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, our, our heart is really to be this open door, um, open house of prayer for anyone that wants to come and seek the Lord. So... That's really what we do. Yeah, it's awesome. That's awesome, and um, you know, Andy, uh, you know, Andy's somebody that I, I really respect uh, prophetically, but also just because of what you do. You know, I mean, my heart obviously is strongly for prayer. I think um, you know the idea of being a house of prayer leader makes no sense to what ninety percent of the people on the planet. You know, like they're just like okay, so you're like a monk, right? You're a modern-day monk or something like that. You're in your monastery over there, you know. Um, But, you know, I I have such a heart for the House of Prayer. I think, you know, I think, you know, the House of Prayer is, is the great remedy for the human-centric nature of what's happened to the church. And I think that it happens throughout history, right? Our temptation is always to become you know, focused about us and what we can get out of it. You know, this is like the mentality for so many Christians when they go to church, you know, what can I get out of this? You know, I, I didn't really like that message. You didn't, you know, the worship, he, he had problems. You know, it's like we become so consumer focused and, you know, a lot of the church has become like that. But the house of prayer is the opposite. The house of prayer doesn't exist, you know, to serve you. It really exists to provide a place, a space for you to serve God and to meet with him 
mm. in the place of prayer. And for you as a director, you know, that's, I would imagine that's a huge part of what you do is just engage with God and yep. then intercede for others, pray for the nation, all these kinds of things. So I yeah. just want to say, you know, right off the bat that um, to me, that is, that is glorious. That is something mm. that is so important for our nation and, um, you know, for the church. And I just want to say I really appreciate everything you're doing. Um, yeah. You know, I know that for this upcoming generation, you know, there's not as strong of a value for prayer. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, I, I want to be careful here because there's a huge prayer movement going on. There's houses of prayer springing up everywhere. So yeah. on one hand, a lot of people are getting a huge vision for prayer and the whole idea of prayer and worship together and even going 24-7. Some of them are going 24-7. Right? This is yeah. all fairly new and amazing. But at yeah. the same time, for those of us who have been in the Korean church, right, um, our forefathers did morning prayer every day, all of them, and right. our generation doesn't do it hardly at all. You rarely see that happening, um, yeah. you know, in this upcoming generation of Korean Americans. Um, even though that's really part of our legacy, and I'm half, I'm half Korean. I don't comment yeah. on that a little bit. What do you think about, you know, what's going on in the Korean church in this generation, and you know, what have you seen as a prayer leader? Yeah, that's a great question, man. I mean, so it's interesting. This podcast is being recorded right off the heels of a really powerful prayer meeting we just had last night. Um, so last last night being Sunday, but uh, it was a kind of a more of a Korean speaking crowd. And it was just really dynamic. It was very powerful. Um, there was a real purity of just kind of how the prayer was moving. But I, I, I say all of that to say that... Um, one of the things that kind of came out uh, in the midst of the prayer meeting was kind of more or less this prophetic word, or it was just kind of like a, a real time hearing from the Lord. And, you know, one of the things that we were talking about last night was um, really how the nation of Korea, if you really study our revival history, um, and how did we become, you know, before the year 1900, I think we were less than 1%. And then somewhere in 1970, 1980, uh, some estimates are that we became 33 to 35% Christian. So by every stretch of the imagination, that's that's crazy. I mean, that's that's a real miracle. That's a true revival movement. But I think, you know, as I think about just the nation of Korea, I think in the wake of the Pyongyang revival and, and a real spiritual awakening that um, took forth uh, in the nation of Korea, one of the hallmarks of our spirituality really was prayer and the prayer movement. Um, this is why, you know, in Korea, you can find so many of these prayer mountains and these prayer gardens. And I think it was a real hallmark of prayer. So there's this thing called charagido, which basically means in English, uh, prayer throughout the night. And so it was a very common practice for early Korean Christians to literally pray throughout the night. Uh, and that would also give birth to things like early dawn prayer or early morning prayer, where entire congregations would gather in the chapel uh, at four to five o'clock in the morning and just seek the Lord uh, as the first thing of, of their day. And so I would say there is this really rich, you know, prayer heritage. However, uh, without sounding too generalistic, I think what happened in the 70s and 80s was we really kind of bought in um, to the megachurch idea. And again, I'm not here to try to pick that apart or anything like that. But I think 
kind of as a byproduct of that and along with that comes just the prosperity of the nation if i'm just being pretty honest i think we kind of lost our desperation yeah i think we lost our our first love in certain regards and so i just really feel like it's almost a prophetic word if i may say this uh it's really kind of like that revelation chapter two word to ephesus which is really um, not only that we've lost our first love, but that God is saying, repent and do the things that you once did at first. And so I really think for us as the Korean church, uh, I do think there is a real call back to prayer. And, um, and I am hopeful because I, I agree with you, right? In, in certain regards, it almost seems like prayer uh, wholesale feels like it's, it's, it's losing its fervor. But at the same time, we are seeing, you know, houses of prayer springing up. So I think those dual realities kind of coexist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a I have a theory, and I, I'm sure it's not original. I'm sure a lot of people think this. Um, but I always feel like if you lose your heart for prayer, you're going to lose your heart for mission. I feel like the two are so, inter- like, they're so intertwined. And um, when I look at a lot of the missions organizations today, yeah. right, and I'm speaking, like, I'm, I'm on colleges a good amount, and I see these campus ministries, and you have, like, historic ones like University and Crusade, which is now Crew, yeah. um, and even KCCC, right, Kore- Korean Campus Crusade. Yeah. Um, these are all essentially missions organizations, right? They were, you know, birthed out of prayer. You know, um, Bill Bright, the founder of Crew, he said fasting was the most important Christian discipline, and wow. he went on five 40-day fasts in his lifetime, wow. right? Um I have yet to talk to a leader and crew who has a serious heart for fasting and prayer. Mm. I'm sure they're out there. I'm not, you know, it's a huge missions organization. I'm sure they're yeah. out there. Yeah. But I've, you know, I've talked with a good amount of crew leaders, you know, and I, you know, most of them are surprised when I talk about fasting. Like it doesn't seem like that's really part of the culture anymore. Wow. And this was the organization that was founded, you know, out of this leader's heart and his one of his main hearts was for fasting. And I I just say that that, I feel like that's um, endemic. Like this is happening to all of these missions organizations where they're losing their heart for prayer. And I think what naturally happens is you lose your heart for missions. And, you know, we have some friends, you and I, um, in YWAM. And I I look at YWAM, and it seems like at least a part of YWAM really started to take on that culture of of prayer, right? Of the prayer room, and um, yeah. it, I'm specifically speaking of, of fire and fragrance, yeah. right? They really incorporated that prayer room DNA, and everything that I hear is that fire and fragrance is like exploding, right? And wow. I feel like the two are linked, right? If you prioritize prayer, I feel like what naturally happens is you get such a heart for mission, and then you receive the grace to do it. Yeah. Um, so what does it mean when our Korean churches are losing their heart for prayer? When the upcoming generation, you don't see them praying. I'm really afraid that they're going to they're gonna die out. We're going to lose our heart for mission and everything that made the Korean church great. I mean, this is just me sharing my heart. I don't know. What do you think about all that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think of a quote from Jim Cimbala. Uh, he writes in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire which is a great resource for anyone that wants to ignite their heart for prayer again. I really feel like Jim Cimbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, I, I do believe there's a living anointing uh, that's on that book for prayer. But, you know, one of the things that he says is he says, 
Um, if you want to find out how popular the preacher is, show up on Sunday service. If you want to, sh- if you want to find out how popular Jesus is, show up to the prayer meeting. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You yeah. know, I think when you really think of what the prayer meeting is, there's nothing really outwardly glamorous about it, but the prayer meeting in and of itself has a purity to it where it really has to be only about Jesus. Yes. Um, he is the focal point. He is the reason why we sing. He's the reason why we gather. And so I say all of this to say, bro, that I, I feel like it's kind of like this. I think, um, I, I, I think I could dissect so many reasons why kind of prayerlessness is an endemic of the church. Uh, I could sit here and talk about our consumer culture that's kind of only permeated and, you know, created greater roots in our society and our psyche. Uh, I could talk about just living in an age of distraction, right? It's like, how many distractions do we literally have at our fingertips? I mean, we could talk about all of these things, but I'm going to just kind of cut to the jugular and say, I think what God is allowing right now is he's allowing us to see the spiritual impotency and he's allowing us to confront that head on for us to realize uh, just how spiritually impotent we've become. Uh, I think, I think there, there comes a real uh, rude awakening, you know, when you really study the book of Acts for yourself and you're like, man, I see what happened there and I see the power. I see the unity. I see the fire. I see the boldness. And then you can't help but to juxtapose that position to your current experience. And I think for any, you know, well-thinking Christian, there comes a point where you really ask yourself, like, why? What's missing, you know? And I do think one of the key components is prayer. I really do. So I think in many ways, you know, God allows us um, to experience the drought, hopefully to a point where we realize, oh my God, we're, something's got to change. And we do come back, you know, to these ancient paths. So that's, that's yeah. something that I would say. Yeah. One last thing on prayer before we transition here. I feel like, um, you know, uh, I would go to, you know, um, morning prayer at the Korean church I used to serve at. And, um, you know, it's it, it was tough for me, to be honest, being at morning <laughs> prayer, just because the style is very yeah. different, right? Yeah. And I used to try and convince them to let us take some morning prayers, you know, let us do it in our style, you know? Mm. And because I just feel like we're, in particular, where worship has come now, right? Mm. And mm. our ability to, you know, mix worship and prayer in a way that um, really synergizes the two, right? It's like, they, I feel like they're made for each other, you know? Yeah, and now we've got worship leaders that are so much better at, um, you know, prophetic worship. Like yeah. I'm remembering, you know, I remember Rita Springer way back in the day in the 90s, and she was so raw, yes. and, um, you know, and but she was singing spontaneously. And it was like, yeah. this is amazing. Like, this is like, wow and now it seems like almost every worship leader of prominence can do what she did you know it's like we've just developed so much in our in in our worship anointing and giftings um and i I still think it's 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 continuing but i just i just had to say like when i'm in a a tremendous worship and prayer meeting when the presence of god is powerful it, it is the most amazing thing to me like i i i hate concerts i think concerts are garbage 
right? Compared <laughs> to an anointed worship prayer set. Like, I love being in that place. So I say that to say, like, our our forefathers didn't have this. We have this incredible privilege to be part of this move of God in worship and prayer. And to me, I can feel the stark difference. The anointing is so amazing. And like, you know, the 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 revelation in worship is so amazing. The revelation of his love. I I, I always think, you know, I feel bad for our past generation because I know they didn't have a lot of that. They didn't have That's the right. revelation of God's love in the Father's heart. That's and right. so they were praying mostly like out of duty and obligation, That's right. you know? That's right. I, I just feel like, man, for us, it's so much better. Yeah. And and but still, our generation doesn't have the same discipline. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what it is. Yeah. No, I think you make a lot of great points there. And I mean, you know, I, I'm not even trying to sound like overly holy, but I mean, I think if I really had to stop and think like, man, what is, what is the most exhilarating moment in life for me? It really is being in the midst of deep, heartfelt, anointed worship where the saints are praying. I mean, literally when I'm in that moment, I'm just like, God, you can take me now. Like, like I I feel like I've hit the pinnacle of what life is about, you know, but, but I mean, yeah, I think, I think you bring up a lot of good points. You know, I think our generation we are learning in, in, in essence to dig our own well mm-hmm. uh, and, and to find our expression of worship. You know, sometimes I think about how, you know, God um, uh, revealed himself in a certain name or a certain manner to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But when he but there's this there's this ongoing revelation when he reveals himself to Moses it's really the first time that we see uh, this different facet of who the Lord is, same God. And so I feel like our generation is really learning how to capture that. And yeah, I, I think I think there's a real practical detail to what you're saying as well is, you know, one of the inheritances of the former generation was, I mean, we'll just call it for what it is, hard work, you know? Yeah. Um, it was showing up, rain or shine, uh, whether we wanted to be there or not, you know? And I think obviously taken to the extreme, it can become militant legalism. But, you know, I do think when when we as a generation, when we find our our love song for God and when we, um, yeah, when we can find that sweet spot, if you will, I, I just, I'm just a firm believer, man. I believe it's, it's, it's like a drug, you get addicted to it. And, yeah. and, and you don't know what you don't know until you find it. And then you're just like, man, this is, this is what I'm made for. This is it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. man. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's transition a little bit. I do want to talk to you about everything that's going on in the nation right now. There's so yeah. much, you know, we're in the midst of still, you know, the election that never ends here, right? Um, <laughs> you know, we still don't know exactly how this is going to go. I've I've said publicly that I, I think Trump is going to be reelected. Um, and a lot of that is because I I trust a lot of the prophetic voices that have spoken strongly on this, right? And yeah. to be clear, um, my view of the prophetic ministry is that as a whole, we're still pretty immature, right? Sure. As a whole, right? Yeah. And um, so even if a lot of prophets that I trust are saying something, I still think they could be wrong, 
right? Sure. I think that that's, that's definitely possible. And, you know, we're called to test prophetic words and things like that. Um, but I, I think that they're probably right on this one, even though right now we still don't have a smoking gun. We don't have, we don't have totally clear evidence that there's been fraud. And we know that Trump, you know, is the kind of person who potentially— even if there was no evidence out there that he would just go and like they're they're stealing it from us and that he would fight he's a fighter like we know this about him so you know i see where a lot of people are coming from and they're like oh yeah he's just lying i understand why they could think that but i have a lot of confidence um you know more in in the prophetic word about what's happening here and also because i feel resonance in my own heart about it and i know i could be wrong i've put the odds i would say 75%. That's what I'm I'm saying. I think Trump has a 75% chance of being reelected right now. That's how I feel. I don't know. I want to get your take, man. How do you feel about this whole thing? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I, I mean, I, I could totally tackle this from just the prophetic lens or the prophetic standpoint. Um, you know, whether it's weighing out the words of the prophets and how does prophecy even work. But I mean, I, I, I want to just kind of tackle this in a little bit of a deeper manner, if that's okay. Right. Yeah. Cause I think, <clears throat> I think to boil it down, all of life really boils down to worldview. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it really is fundamental, right? Uh, what is the worldview that I have? What, what is the lens in which I view, interact and interpret the world? Um, that I live in. And uh, I think the first question that I really challenge believers, because this is righteous remnant, and we're talking to Christians right now, right? I think the first question that I always begin with is, you know, do, do we have a biblical worldview? Right? Yeah. And what does that even mean? What does it even mean to have a biblical worldview? Well, I mean, case in point, it means that your lens and your view of reality, of truth, of what is real, it the Bible is your standard in which you look through that. So I'll give you a quick example, right? If you say that you have a biblical worldview, but you don't, uh, you don't believe in angels or demons, then you don't really have a biblical worldview because there, now there's a cognitive dissonance, right? You say you right. believe one thing, but it doesn't match up. And so I think it first begins with that, right? Because if we have a biblical worldview, then, you know, that in and of itself gives us a frame of reference in which we look at the world. And so from that place, you know, we then begs the question, you know, who is God and what is God's involvement in the affairs of man? And I think if we, if we look at, if we examine anything in the biblical schema or the prophetic schema of, of the Bible, we see that God is involved in the affairs of man. We see that God does appoint and tear down and raise up kings and, you know what I'm saying? So Absolutely. we, what we've done in Western Christianity is we've kind of sequestered God into the realm of ethics and morals and church life. But that's, that's not it. I mean, right. we're putting God in a box. He's so much bigger. He's so much more involved in, in every part of life than we could ever imagine. So I think with that, man, I would say what I want to really unpack and give my um, my view and my thoughts on is I think what we're seeing in America right now, just to call it for what it is, it's ideological warfare. Yeah. We are in a war. Okay. Let me put it even more like this spiritual warfare in America is really taking the shape of ideology and narrative. Mm. 
right? So if you really think about what, what I mean by this is every single one of us, we all, we all live according to the stories that we believe, right? So if I believe the story of atheism and Darwinism, that's a story. And I've now believed that. And now I view and, and, and interact with the world from that lens, right? So if I take that to its fullest extent, uh, human beings don't have meaning or morality because we are literally a, you know, we, we're, we're, it's survival of the fittest. It's where it, you have to reduce us to chemical compounds and molecules and this, that, and the third in a very scientific level. But if I believe in more of a biblical worldview, then that gives me a different lens. So I would say we're in a war of ideologies in America. And let me just make it even more down to earth right now. I think we're going to have to ask this very fundamental question. It boils down to this. Does God have a plan and a purpose for America? Was this nation founded upon biblical godly principles or was this nation built in wickedness? I think this is ground zero of the warfare. And I think it is, it is these two narr- narratives, it's these two stories that are literally vying for the attention, vying for the minds and hearts of our generation that each, of, each and every one of us has to settle within our hearts first. Because the reason why I'm going here, Dennis, is because if we have bought into a narrative that this nation is built on wickedness, that this hasn't been built on godly principles, then now we're going to view everything according to that lens. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so for me, I come from, I don't even like using this word, but I come from a camp or I come from a school of thought or a belief system that God, uh, God does have a plan and a destiny for this nation. I don't just say that, um, you know, uh, what is it? Um, sentimentally, I say that uh, based on evidence and reasons from which I can see. So, you know, I, I am a pretty avid student of, of human history, of American history. And what I see in American history is there, there, there does seem to be um, a divine hand on this nation. Now, let me clearly say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that this nation is without its faults or its sins. I would even like to liken this as we're talking about how does God relate to human beings, right? We, we all would sit here and agree that God had a plan and a destiny for David, but was he without blemish or spot? Are you catching what I'm saying? For sure. And so sometimes we put these, we put these, um, these standards on the nation that we would never even put on ourselves. You see what I'm saying? It's Absolutely. slightly hypocritical. And so yeah. I think it starts from there. So if I believe these things now, um, that I think that has to get settled in our heart first. But if I do believe God has a plan and a purpose for this nation, then now we have to begin to ask the question, well, how, what, what, what are God's thoughts with our current moment in time? What is the prophetic perspective? And this is now where I'm coming full circle to your original question is I do believe in genuine prophecy. I do. I do believe in genuine prophets, right? If the Bible clearly tells us that in the last days there will be false prophets, well, that clearly denotes that there will be real ones too. And so um, I think we're really uh, in, a, in, a, in a discernment game. Um, 
And so I do believe that the prophets are hearing from the Lord. Do I believe all of them? Do I believe every single one? Of course not. But I do believe when you can see a consistent prophetic schema, when I think there are certain confirmations and let's just say supernatural occurrences that are undeniable, at the very least, it should make one truly, truly ponder and seek the Lord for themselves. I'll just give you a quick one, right? Because again, I'm just, yep. <laughs> I'm just going out. I'm just good. being super real right now. But <laughs> you know, there is a prophet named Kim Clement. I, I'm sure you're familiar with Kim Clement. Mm-hmm. Um, not the most well known in terms of you know even the charismatic world, but I would say with integrity in my heart, he was absolutely the real deal. When I look at Kim Clement, when I look at guys like Bob Jones, I mean, really, you're talking about people that have uh, a very deep track record um, of accuracy in terms of what they hear from the Lord. And, you know, you just can't, you can't do away with some of these things that um, Kim Clement prophesied literally seven to 10 years before the Trump presidency. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so um, I don't even know what the original question was, bro, but. Uh, yeah. Well, it was, what do you think, what do you think is going to happen specifically with Trump here or with this reelection? But I hear, I hear everything you're saying. Yeah. I, I would say this, dude. I, I personally, okay. I personally believe that when the dust settles, I think he's going to be uh, found validated as the legitimate winner. Let's just put it as simple as that, right? Because yes. sometimes we can get so lost in the um, in the in the spiritual prophetic language. But guys, let's just call it for what it is. I mean, a first and foremost, was this an actual fair election? I think anyone with a critical mind, critical thinking mind, can clearly see no something's terribly off here. And this is why we live in, well, this is why we have the constitutional system that we do. This is why we have a system of checks and balances. This is why we have a Supreme Court. We literally have things and principles in place in this nation that was intended to serve for justice and righteousness. So what is justice, guys? It is bringing about the outcome of what is actually true. So I think when it's all said and done, I think we are going to see this go to the highest court in the nation, by the way, which is there for a reason, right? For this very reason, it's the highest court of appeals. And I think from there, you know, the, the, the question that every average American has to ask is, do we trust in the system or are we going to continue to buy into this narrative that questions every single principle of this nation? Because really what's happening right now with the left, okay, is there is such a violent, vehement, deceptive attack, not on, I'm going to put it like that, it's so much bigger than Donald Trump to me personally, Dennis, it's so much bigger than one president, it has to do with the very principles of this nation. And when you're, when we're now, when we're now attacking the very bedrock and the principles of this nation, however, quote unquote, faulted they may be, well, now you and I have to ask the question, what is the alternative? What is the end outcome? And how does this not end in absolute anarchy, right? And I think the left has done a very brilliant, I would even go as far as to say a demonic job, okay? They've done a very brilliant and demonic job of 
releasing a full all out assault. See, the thing, Dennis, that people don't realize about me personally is I have revolutionary spirit all up in my blood, bro. I really do. Like people don't want to mess with me, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like people would love to sequester me as this, like, you know, they think I'm this right wing, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, bro, you don't understand who I am. I mean, this might offend some people. Like I got a little bit more Alex Jones in my blood than people realize. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And what I mean by that is this, you guys, is when I was 19 years old, I was uh, discipled by a left Marxist professor. He openly told me that. Um, at Georgia State University. He was my professor in political science 201. And he literally handpicked several students from the class that he felt like had the most potential, I being one of them. And we would spend countless hours with this guy after class. Now that I'm looking back, it's kind of probably a little inappropriate, right? Like just student, you know, professor boundaries or whatnot. But I mean, this guy was full blown into indoctrination. And so, for me, I really, I, I know this is going to sound strange too. I, I appreciated a good amount of what I actually learned through him, not everything, because he, he, this guy actually opened my eyes to the world of, let's just call it for what it is, some of the more hidden underbellies of America, right? He was the first one in 2006 to talk to me about Bohemian Grove, right? He was the first one to talk to me about what does it mean to be a blue blood, he was the one that actually opened my eyes to, you know, these these political aristocratic uh, aristocracy families in America. So really, he was talking about establishment back then. Uh, but the reason why I eventually pulled away and woke up out of it was because I realized that the intended goal for this gentleman in particular was absolute anarchy. And I had enough biblical, you know, Holy Spirit sense into me to be like, all right, dude, that's not God. So. Yeah. Um, so I say all of that, bro, because uh, I, and I don't say this in any sort of cocky or arrogant way, but I, I, I'm, I'm pretty well read, bro. Um, I'm pretty well studied. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of things that I say that people would love to chalk up to conspiracy theory, but I just throw it right back at them. And I'm like, well, give me a better explanation, you know? Um, just because something is outside of your frame of reference doesn't make it conspiracy. Yeah. So I'll just well, pause there. Well, that's great. I mean, there's so yeah. many things, you know, we could go from there. So, uh, okay, let me touch on a couple of them. So mm-hmm. at the end there, what I hear you talking about is something that I've heard referred to as the gated institutional narrative. Are you familiar with that term? Uh, I am. Yep. So, yeah, this guy, um, I think it was coined by Eric Weinstein. Eric Weinstein um, is, he has a he has a podcast um, called The Portal, but he's part of, you know, this cadre of you know, intellectuals called the intellectual dark web. And these are guys mm-hmm. like Jordan Peterson and, mm-hmm. you know, Dave Rubin and some some of these ilk. And, um, but he, I first heard him talk about this idea that what we have is we have in America these gatekeepers of the institutions. And what they do is they um, determine what is a respectable, what's a respectable thing to believe and what's irrespectable, Right. Which yep. should not be respected, and so you have organizations like the New York Times, like you know Harvard, right? Harvard, a Harvard professor, something like that. And these yeah. are the, these gatekeepers, and so if they call something ridiculous, what's happened is it is shunned, and there's this attempt to ridicule it. And what, but what it really is that they're trying to protect a certain narrative. 
and I'm not sure to what degree it's conscious or not, but you do like we we have come to a place in America now where um, if you're Alex Jones, who's a great example, um, Alex Jones got banned from every major media platform in the space of two weeks. Yep. I I. To, I, just being honest here, I didn't. I was not familiar with Alex Jones at all until sure. that happened. Sure. And when that happened, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that! What is he saying that would get him banned from every single platform?" Yep. And um, you know, and I I listened to him a couple interviews on Joe Rogan actually. Yep. And um, you know, he he you could tell he's eccentric. Um, he's yeah. He's, super he's eccentric. eccentric. He's a little out there. But he said enough things that made me say, okay, there's a reason why they shut him down. Yep. Right? He's talking about things that are dangerous to this narrative, this public narrative. And and I say that because I'm clearly, you know, in in the same kind of camp as Alex Jones in the minds of a lot of people, right? Sure. And from what you say, I'm sure that you're in there too. But that's sure. really because I again, I don't know that much of Alex Jones. It's simply that I don't care about the gated narrative, right? I have no respect for that narrative. And when, you know, we're living in an age now of, of cancel culture and deplatforming, and, you know, a lot of people are pushing for hate speech laws. Yep. So free speech has never been under attack like it is today. And I know that this is something that you have a real heart for. Number one, why do you think this is happening? And how do we, how, what do we do about this? Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to go for the jugular, bro. I <clears throat> So, okay, Pe- people are asking this question is like, are we in civil war? That's a whole nother topic for another day. I'd like to put it like this. It, are, is America at war right now? I'm going to say a very bold statement to say a thousand percent. Yes, there is a war. We're, we're living in the midst of a war right now. Just because bombs and mortars and bullets aren't flying doesn't mean we're, we're not in a war. I would actually say we are more in a global conflict right now than anyone realizes. And it's really ideological, psychological warfare. It really is at its core, uh, at its core, right? So let's just, let let, let me just, can I paint a picture real quick? Yeah, please. So, I mean, Karl Marx, okay? Why why is he worth noting? Why is this guy worth talking about? you know, it, what, what cracks me up sometimes about more of these left outlets is they love to try to do these like preemptive strikes because they know where the jugular is. They know where they know where the soft spot of of of, of where they are is or where it is. And so they'll try to like dance it all around and whatever, whatever. But OK, why are we talking about Karl Marx? Because Karl Marx gave birth to the Communist Manifesto. Without Karl Marx, there would be no communism okay now why is this is why is this important to talk about because what you and i need to understand is communism isn't an economic system it's a worldview right it's a thousand percent it's a worldview it's an ideology it's a set of values and ways of looking at the world that dramatically changes the way we look at everything so that's that right right so then one would one must question well okay if this man gave birth to this worldview wrote das kapital and all of these other things what type of man was he? Well, I'm just going to, for the sake of the time of the podcast, he was deeply entrenched in the occult. Deeply entrenched in the occult. You actually read what he writes about in Das Kapital, blatant racist, hated Jews, 
wasn't really about class warfare as much as we think he is, right? A lot of people would love to, to believe in this, this romantic idea that he was for the underdog and this, that, and the third. No, he wasn't. He was actually more interested in an overturning of society. That's what he was right. interested in, okay? So why is this important? Because what we have today is that ideology, whether you'd like to believe it or not, has lived on, Okay. Well, how do we know that? Well, I mean, there's still communist nations in the world, but if you understand, it's kind of like this. If I understand the tenets of communism, then I'm able to discern and dissect that wherever I see it now. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And so what we're seeing in America right now, see people, I'll qualify all of this stuff later. There's been a plan to socialize and communize America for the last 80 to 100 years. I know what I sound I know what I'm saying sounds crazy, but people okay. don't realize that this this plan has actually been in effect for longer than you and I could ever imagine. This is a very very well articulated, thought out, highly funded, multifaceted plan. And now let me get a little bit biblical on you. This plan has been in effect in America because in at the end of the day, what this plan actually is about, what this global system is about. I mean, don't even get me started on uh, the Rothschilds. Don't even get me started on who is the United Nation, who is, uh, you know, the World Bank and, and the World Trade Organization and the IMF. Like, I won't even go there on this podcast yet, but there is clearly a global system, globalist, whatever you want to call it in effect that is trying to usher us not only into a new world era and in order to affect that new world era the, the ideological groundwork has to first be set that's what people aren't realizing right. and it's really trying to take us into a one world government one world economy and really if, if any of us have any notion of the bible I mean, all of this is clearly laid out for us in the book of Revelation. So, yeah. um, sorry, Dennis, what was the original question? No, it's fine. I mean, we're just going, we're just going on a good, <laughs> a, a good path it. here. No, it, that's fine. So I hear you and I'm on the same page with you, Andy. I think yeah. we're, we're largely on the same place. When I look at what scripture talks about, this is what they're talking about. It's talking about the war that we're engaged in. It is a spiritual war, but it's, it's a really a war of ideas. It's a war that's of ideologies. It. That's it. Right, our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? But against the powers, That's and right. we, we the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, right? But they're spiritual and powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. We fight against arguments, ideologies that raise themselves above the knowledge of Christ. So I, I, I'm 100% on the same page. We are in a war, and the the clearer that we can see it, the more we can engage in it. And, right. you know, I have a whole, you know, long testament. I won't share the whole thing, but I had a vision when I was in college and the Lord spoke to me and said, you're in the middle of the greatest war that's ever been fought, but because yep. you can't see it and you don't understand it, you can't engage in it. That's right. That was the word that he told me, but he said, if I promise you, Dennis, if you trust me, I'll show you how to fight in this war. That's right. And that word I've held on to now for almost 20 years and I... I definitely see it a lot more now. Let this everything you're talking about. Yeah. Um. I, I like the way that um, Jordan Peterson articulates it. He talks about ideas. You know, we often think that people have great ideas. That's right. And um, you know, he says that's actually backwards. I think he got this from from Jung. He argues, no, it's not that people have ideas. It's ideas have people. That's right. Right. Ideas 
take a hold of people that's right and use them for their purposes and that fits 100% into a biblical worldview where right. there are spiritual powers right who utilize ideologies right to manipulate control and to um you know further their own interests right that's right and um yeah so when we're talking about you know marxism or socialism um I think a lot of people naturally think, oh, this is, oh, you just, you're being political again, and, you know, we're, we're supposed to be Christian, we're not supposed to care about politics and uh -huh. stuff. Oh, I'd love to say something about this. Oh, I mean, please do. Yeah, so, no, <laughs> let, 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 let's pop that bubble right now. Um, yes, I'm pretty well politically informed, but let me just say this pretty strong on the outset. Uh, I'm really a Bible teacher at the end of the day. I, 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 I've studied the Bible pretty extensively. I'm not saying that arrogantly. I'm just saying that as that is, this is what I do. So for me, I have the Bible in one hand and I have a newspaper in the other. This is Carl, Carl Barth. And he says, as a true informed Christian, you have to have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other hand. And then he says, but make sure that your Bible is informing the newspaper. I want to just say this, that I truly live my life like that, right? Uh, am I politically informed? Of course I am. That's the newspaper side. But my primary side is the Bible. This is my standard of truth. CNN, whatever, Washington Post, Breitbart, all these things, these are not my standards of truth. This is the commentary, right? right. So the reason why I attack it from this way is because one of my great challenges that I'm putting for a lot of people right now is truly living with the end in mind, okay? Uh, I think one of the great banes of our current generation of Christians right now is we have a very weak eschatology, right? Eschatology just being a fancy word for a study of the end times. Mm -hmm. And I think when we really start to understand, right, we would all study Genesis for the very reason of we want to understand the origin of all things. And I would say conversely, we have to study Revelation. We have to study the the, the words of Jesus concerning the end because we want to understand the end of all things, right? Um, why would we not want to study something that God has clearly uh, proclaimed from the, uh, the end from the beginning, right? And so the reason why I'm going here is because when you study the book of Revelation, and I'll just use it like this, from more of a classical conservative, uh, I'm just going to put this out there, I'm more of a classical conservative a premillennial post-tribulation view. That's my personal eschatology, okay? Sure. Um, when you study what the book of Revelation actually says, it is undeniable to see at least a glimpse of the picture of what this end, what, 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 what does this end time world going to look like? It is absolutely clear that there's going to be famines, pestilences, wars of, of of a magnitude that we could not even imagine it's undeniable that there is going to be a solidarity of an economic system that's really going to be controlled by this thing called the mark of the beast i mean guys what i'm saying right now this isn't this is just the bible right um it's very clear that the bible says if you don't take this mark whatever that mark may be that one literally has an inability for economic transaction. How could that actually be enforced if it were not for a globalized system? It's very clear that the Bible says that the people of God will be hated by all nations and given unto tribulation. It's very clear that the Bible talks about a one world type of government that's going to be in effect because the Bible makes absolutely clear through the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation that an antichrist is going to rise 
and he is going to have a magnitude of control, authority, and power over the world as seen never before. That's what the Bible says. So we know that there's going to be a global power. So all of this to say, if we know some of these pictures of what the end is, then we have to really tether our present with the end reality. And it has to inform all of these things. So why am I saying this, right? Because you and I have to ask this question, right? I'm going to like get probably so much flack for this. I don't care, right? Like it has to inform what, what is COVID-19 really about, okay? It has to inform why, why is free speech important? Let's just go there, Dennis, because I know you sure. and I are INTP, INFPs. We can dance all over the globe for like five hours. Sure. But let's just talk about free speech and how it pertains to what I just said, right? Yeah. So the reason why we're even talking about Marxism, socialism, and all of these things, I'm just going to make a statement for the jugular. These ideologies are the ideal, ideological groundwork and forerunners for the Antichrist empire. I'm absolutely convinced of that. You and I can have a conversation if you disagree, but I will prove you wrong. <laughs> but um, in order for the Antichrist to truly take power, it, it requires a centralization of governmental power and it requires a centralization of economic power. So is it any surprise that every single nation in the world has a centralized bank except for Iran and North Korea right now? That's another story for another day. Uh, President Gaddafi uh, resisted a central bank. He was taken out and killed for that. We could talk about that later. But it, it requires a consolidation of power and it requires a consolidation of governmental power. So what does socialism actually do? Yes, we could talk about all the little cute fairy dust around socialism. Let's just get to the jugular. It consolidates governmental power. For it sure. centralizes power. For sure. And by nature, this is absolutely antithetical to what makes America America because we are founded as a republic. So let me just kind of stop here or, or, yeah. or make, make my headway here. But this is why... We are in the battle of our lifetimes, agreeing with you, Dennis. We are in the battle of our lifetimes because what we're actually fighting for is we're fighting for principle. Let me just talk about free speech and then I'll pass it back to you. Yeah. I think if any listener was being really honest with themselves right now, how comfortable are you in saying what's really on your mind? If you actually believed that there was fraud, and if you actually believed that Donald Trump is actually a pretty half-decent president, just in terms of his policy, and you live in California, how comfortable are you saying that? Or are you afraid? And why are you afraid? Like, I really, I'm really asking that question. Why are you afraid? And I would say you're afraid, most likely, because what is actually being perpetuated in the airwaves, what's being perpetuated in the atmosphere is an absolute culture of intimidation. What is intimidation? Intimidation is the cross point between domination and manipulation. When we can manipulate a society by telling them this is okay and this is not okay to say. And when we come behind that with a force of domination by trying to project consequences for what you say and what you don't say, I'm sorry, that is absolute freaking intimidation. It's deception and witchcraft of the highest order. That's what's happening in America right now. Right. And I'll just lovingly say this, this is why most of, the, most of the church right now, we have our spiritual nuts cut off right now. We do. 
Yeah. Because we're not saying what we really want to say. And we would love to package it in the sense of I'm being wise and I'm being loving. No, you're not. You're being afraid. You're not saying what you truly believe in you. And now you're entering into the realm of compromise of not saying what you believe because there is a, okay. And just hear my word. Some will take it one way and others will take, there's a spirit of Jezebel in this land. Okay. What is the, what am I talking about? There's a manipulative, intimidating spirit in this land that will not allow you to say what you want to say. Right. Anyways, I could get carried away, but let's just pause there. No, I think that's great, man. Um, I think, you know, obviously I've, I've dealt with this a good amount. Um, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I'm currently applying for a lot of different positions right now, and at most of the churches, I would say, the, almost all of them, the condition for me is I can't, I can't say controversial things <laughs> on social media. Yeah. Like, the, like I, I knew that it was a major issue in the church, but everything that I'm going through right now is, is making me understand it's not just a major issue in the church it is a dominant issue in the church it's it's literally um this is what i've found if you're kind of more on the left as a as a church leader yep you tend to talk about politics and engage your people in the struggle against oppression right that's your that's your um worldview yeah, and that's that's biblically consistent and everything to you, right? Yeah. If you're more conservative, though, you tend to have a view of there's politics and there's church, and we just want to stay in church, and we don't want to we don't want to hinder get political that's because right. if we do, then we're going to offend people, and that's we're right. trying to win their we're we're trying to win their souls. So right. I understand that heart, and part of me you know loves that heart, um, but part of me also hates that heart. Because of everything that you're saying, what it's done is it has it has silenced the church, it and it 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 makes me upset that the greatest defenders of the Bible today in our culture really are not Christians; they're Orthodox Jews like Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro, yeah, and they're guys like Jordan Peterson who's not who's not an evangelical Christian, right? No. These guys are the, are the ones glorifying the Bible in our culture, and Christians aren't. And a huge part of it is because we've decided that we should not offend. And help me understand this, Andy, because yeah. I just don't see this anywhere in Scripture. I, I just feel like when you look at Jesus, you look at the apostles, you look at the Old Testament prophets, they all offended everyone. You know, like, they're they're polarizing figures. I feel like yeah. that is the pattern. Yeah. And yet, you know, here we are today, and it just seems like the majority like the vast majority of christian leaders yeah. in america today have taken this tack of do not be offensive explain it to me man yeah i mean i i really don't want to come across as insensitive because i think like you dennis it's like i understand the heart of a pastor i am a pastor you see what i'm saying so yeah. by nature the heart of the pastor is very concerned of the heart and the souls of the people that they lead. So I get that, right? So I think one of the most um, devastating things for a pastor is to see division in the church. I, I get that, you know, and the pastor is going to fight tooth and nail to do whatever he can to try to keep the peace of the unity of the, of the brethren, right? Like, so I just want to put that out there. I get that. And I'm not, 
insensitive to that heart set, right? I do want to lovingly say that I think I think most pastors have great intentions, Dennis. I think they have good intentions. If I'm being lovingly honest, I think most of us are pretty naive as to the level of warfare that is actually being perpetuated in our society. And I would love to say this. One, one of my mentors says it like this. We don't understand how evil evil is. Yeah. I'll say that one more time. We don't understand how evil evil is. Because I think if we really saw the evil root of some of the things that society is dealing with right now, I would like to believe that the church would 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 have a very stronger backbone if they were privy or aware to 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 the level of of I'm just going to call for what is how demonic certain things are. But I mean, going to your question, bro. I mean, yeah. I mean, my, my heart is this, dude. I I I don't ever want to sit here and be the the dude that's like standing on the the stool and you know shouting down to the. I'm not. It, it, I I'm really coming from like, Hey, I'm your brother. I really right. am. I'm coming. I'm, I'm locking arms with you. But really what I want to say now is it, it really kind of feels like we're entering in if we're not already there in Esther 414 moment where it's like, dude, you're going to have to speak now or forever hold your peace, bro. Right. And I'm not just saying bros, ladies and gentlemen, let's put like that. Right. Yeah. You're going to have to speak your peace sooner or later or forever hold your peace. I mean, guys, I'm just going to get real right now. Right. I mean, when we think of where certain mainline denominations have gone, I'm not going to call them out by name, okay? But let's just call it for what it is. I mean, we cannot sit here and sit back and to think that there has not been a dramatic, gradual, liberal, leftist encroachment upon, uh, upon the way we do church and the ideologies of the church, right? And I think... I think to those who are truly awake, I think they, they, they see this and they know it, right? Most of my friends are quite conservative in their theological views and things like that. But I think it boils down to what you're talking about is why, why do we feel afraid, right? And I'm just going to say my own personal um, story with this, Dennis, and then I'll pass it back to you. That was me, more or less, Dennis, if I'm being honest. Um, I... You know, I'm 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 pretty politically privy to a lot of things. I understand what's going on in America. To be honest, uh, when Trump became president, I was actually just observing him as a U.S. citizen, wanting to see how he would run policy. What would his foreign? Po- I mean, that's just me, right? And to my surprise, he actually kept good on a lot of things that he said he would. Mm-hmm. And actually, what really got my attention besides the economy was the way that he dealt with East Asian politics. Yeah. I was very impressed. And I think if you're a, a Korean who, who's been, you know, watching what's been going on with North Korea, I mean, it's, it's undeniable that the past five presidents have not even been able to do anything near what Trump was able to execute in bringing Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in to the table and right. all of these things. So you have to give credit where credit is due, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but for me, I think, uh, sorry, I keep going on these tangents, bro. This is what happens when I'm around you, dog. (laughs) But I think, I think, um, I think the reason why we're not speaking up, going back to my story, I was pretty quiet for the last few years. I would engage in these little, you know, Facebook dialogues here and there. And I just get really annoyed and kind of like 
tired of them. You know what I mean? Like people wanting to argue me like on seven sure. posts and I'm just like, dude, this is going nowhere. Like this is retarded. Like you're wasting my life right now, you know? <laughs> but I think the point where I really started to say enough is enough because um, in the deepest part of who I am, uh, I, have an, I'm, I have a huge heart, bro. And, uh, and we deal with people in our ministry. We counsel a lot of what we do, Dennis is counseling. And we deal with people who have come from extreme brokenness of, you know, bullying and, uh, uh, domination, uh, physical abuse, a lot of physically abused women. And so we, we see the hallmarks of manipulation, domination, and intimidation. And there's an intensity that rises up out of me. And I really believe it's the heart of God. Uh, to really say enough is enough and yeah. we're going to go after these things. And so that's what I started to see in society. Uh, I, I'm just going to say it for what it is. I just, I said enough is enough. Like the way that the left was dominating the narrative, the way that the left was trying to cancel out every other voice that wasn't its own. Yeah. I just saw it for what it is. This is absolute intimidation, manipulation, and domination. Yeah. And I think for me as a, as a man of God, I, I just had to stand up and say, no, this is enough is enough. Yeah. And so um, I think that would be my heart. You know, my heart for any Christian leader would be to really examine what's happening in our nation right now from an objective lens and ask yourself this question, like, where does this slippery slope end? Yeah. And are you going to hold your peace now in order to salvage something or are you going to speak out and we and, and 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 kind of let the church regain its prophetic voice? Absolutely. Yeah. I remember um, you know, a couple of weeks back, you know, I let you know that we, you know, we're starting a podcast and and you asked what the name was, and I told you it's it's the yeah. righteous remnant. And you're like, that's yeah. that's perfect. Yeah. And um I assume I, I forget exactly what you said, but it, I'm assuming because you feel wind on this word remnant, and when you feel anointing on that word, and I have started to hear that word coming out of the mouths of a lot of prophetic people now, and obviously it's something that that we heard, which is why we we named it this. Um, I would love to hear what have you been feeling about this idea of a remnant. I mean, you know. First and foremost, it's it's such a um, it's such a strong motif in the Bible, right? Um, from the times of Israel, uh, Elijah, you know, literally thought he was alone, like he thought he was the only one that was holding it down for God, and God told him, "No, Elijah, open your eyes." And there's seven thousand in the land of Israel that haven't bowed down to the name of Baal, right? Mm -hmm. So this motif of a remnant is strong and, and yeah, so it's strong. It's in the Bible. It's real. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I want to also just say this. I'm not trying to come across right now and to be like, yeah, I'm the remnant. We're the remnant, you know, and like we're the only ones like I'm not trying to sound spiritually arrogant like that at all. I'm just simply saying this, guys. We have to really wrestle with some of the more difficult verses of the Bible if we're going to have a level of sound maturity, I think in this time, um, what does one do with Matthew seven? Many will come to me on that day and saying, Lord, Lord, uh, did I not X, Y, Z, but the Lord will look upon them and say, nay, I never knew you. 
What do we do with that? Uh, what do we do with uh, Jesus talking about the narrow gate or the narrow road? He said, wide is the road of destruction. Many will traverse on that, but very few will find the road that leads to life. Yeah. Uh, what do we do with Matthew 24, where Jesus says, in the last days, false prophets will arise and deceive many. So I think what I'm saying is at the very least, um, these motifs in the Bible of what it means to truly be a remnant, it has to be taken seriously. Yeah. It has to be taken with a sobriety. I'd say that at the very least. But I mean, do I believe that uh, America is in a time where we're going through a great sifting? I do. I do. Um, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this too, Dennis. But I think America is going through a, a time of great sifting. Um, you know, I'm just going to be very bold on this podcast with some of the things that I have, you know, prophetically sensed over the years. Um, back in 2015 and 16 in particular, um, I, I was having a series of encounters with God. I'll just put it at that for now. And, uh, and I really felt God started to really illuminate certain things about uh, the future of a great falling away. And uh, I mean, again, that's another, that's another verse that we all have to wrestle with is yeah. uh, in the book of Jude, it talks about a great apostasy. It talks about a great falling away. I believe it's echoed again in first Thessalonians that before the man of lawlessness, who is the antichrist, before he is revealed, the great falling away of believers must happen first. And so I, I pondered these questions, Dennis, in my heart really deeply actually right i'm like god uh i'm gonna come to you on your terms i believe you at your word right you're you're the arbiter of truth not me so god your word is truth i believe it i'm just trying to find understanding god like how is this gonna happen you know like i, I like at that time you know even six years ago five six years ago i couldn't imagine i'm like how are so many believers gonna fall away and this is what I felt God put in my heart. And I'm just going to say this very humbly, but I felt God just gave me this one phrase, Dennis. And he said, men will be carried away by their souls. The soulishness of men will carry men away by every wind of trickery of doctrine. Yeah. And as I really examined that, what I felt was this, you know, as a Christian, we can either be spirit led or we can be led by our souls. Right. I think first Corinthians chapter two makes that very adamantly clear. Right. There's the natural man that tries to understand the things of God using the natural mind. But then there's the spiritual man who discerns things spiritually. And oftentimes the things of the spirit are foolishness to man. Are you with me? Yeah. And so I think when when God was really putting that on my heart, he was saying, Andy, many will become offended in the last days. And Jesus echoes that, right? I believe in uh, Matthew 24, 9, he says, many will be offended. And I think we don't understand how toxic offense is to the human heart. Uh, John Bevere wrote a great book on offense called The Bait of Satan. I really believe that offense is the bait of Satan. So why do I say that? Because we live in a culture and a society now where offense is celebrated. Yeah. The more offended you are, the more somehow you become, uh, uh, you level up in wokeness or truth. Yeah. And I think if we're, if I'm just being lovingly honest with the body of Christ right now, this is an absolute ploy of Satan and the devil yeah. 
to snatch men's hearts and to deceive many during this time. And, and I'll just say it, you know, like, I think, I think you can walk heavy with the Lord at one point in your life, but I think you can be deceived. I think you can be, I think the devil can have his way in your life. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure the reform guys are throwing their stones at me now as we speak. God bless you. I love you guys. You're still my brothers, <laughs> even though I don't agree with you. But um, but that's just where I stand, Dennis. Well, Andy, I think we we agree on way too much, man. Like it's hard. It's hard to uh, it's hard to get into it when we're uh, everything. I just want to say, yeah, right on. I, but I appreciate it. I appreciate that you're articulating a lot of things that um, have been weighing on my heart um, for a long time now. Um, yeah. For many years, I've felt a burden to prepare the church, to prepare the church for hardships. Yeah. And um, th- that's because I, I, I think hardships are coming. I think hard times are coming. And, um, yeah. you know, I was just talking with a friend about 2020, and, you know, everybody's saying 2020 is the worst year ever. And I'm like, no, 2020 is an amazing year, right? 2020 yeah. is, you know, everything is is wonderful right now compared to what's coming. And getting into, um, you know, what you're talking about with eschatology, this is the 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 picture that we get from Romans 8, right? That the creation yeah. is in the pangs of childbirth. And um, I think that's a good metaphor for what we can expect, right? Yeah. That the pangs get more intense and more severe, and they come in waves, right? Just like, yes. um, you know, contractions in childbirth, and it gives birth, right, to the new creation, right, to yeah. the second coming of Messiah. And um, I think that's a, I think that's the, the perfect picture. So the destruction, the devastation that we saw in the 20th century is the worst that the world has ever seen, right? We saw, you know, over 100 million killed in World War II. We saw, yep. Um, yep. you know, all the communist... Um, devastation, destruction, the the pogroms, the Holocaust, all of this incredibly terrible things. Um, and worse than that is coming. Worse than that is coming. And the church, we're not prepared for this. We're not prepared for hardship. We're not prepared for, um, you know, the real test. But Scripture talks about this constantly. It's always talking about how we have to go through hardships, Right, mm. that the hardships test our faith; they prove our faith, and that that faith is 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 worth um, is worth more than gold to the Lord. Right, I believe that's First Peter, Second Peter. Um, that's we've got to get prepared for what's coming, and that's a huge part of what you know this is about. I tell people, look, you know, this podcast this is not something I, I would I, I know how to do. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do media. I like I this is all new, but I'm just trying to be obedient, you know, to the Lord. But the whole idea here is we've got to do whatever we can do to prepare people. And the persecution that is coming right now that you're alluding to with the idea that if you speak up, if you voice unpopular opinions, right, um, will you be canceled? Yeah, I think so. You can get canceled. You can get fired. You can get little angry faces on your Facebook wall, you know, like... There is real a real aspect of persecution, but yeah. this is just this is this is low level stuff that we need. Like how it's playing. Yeah, we got it. We if we can't handle this level, can we handle what's coming? And I, I think the answer is no. No. If we don't have the courage to face this level of persecution, we're not gonna be ready for what's to come. And so I'm encouraging every believer, even if it costs you, speak out, even if it costs you right? Um, stand for truth, right? Don't be ashamed of Jesus's commands, right? Don't be ashamed of him or his words or his ways, 
right? Learn to take this low-level persecution because we need the training right now. And so that's a huge part, you know, of my heart um, for this. What you know, righteous remnant is about is it's to it's to call it's to call forth a righteous remnant, right? Like we're mm. not saying that we are the remnant. We're saying that there are many, right? There are many, but many of them are um, they don't know about each other and they feel alone right but to call us forth and say no now's the time to rise and shine right now's the time to rise and shine and i you know i've shared with many people i think god right now is preparing so many amazing leaders i think i think there's so many amazing leaders that are being trained in relative obscurity right now and going through the trials and the tests of forgiveness of of thanksgiving right of faith in all of these things and this is all part of the necessary training we have to go through all of these things and yeah. i i just see um a, an entire a new wave of incredible leaders rising up and i do feel i feel a lot of these are going to be women number one mm. i feel yes. a lot of these in america are going to be minorities i feel yep. like god yep. is is anointing so many minorities yep. which is a, a big reason why you know this whole neo-marxist you know cultural marxist thing of intersectionality and whatnot you have to understand yeah. the nature of what it means to be antichrist is a, it's a counterfeit yes right an antichrist is is not the opposite of Christ. It's a counterfeit Christ. That's right. Right. It tries to take the place of Christ. And That's right. in the same wow. way, you know, this antichrist type of movement, it it's a counterfeit that comes before in this case, right? And um that's a huge part, I think, of why there's this huge emphasis right now on minorities and women and all of these historically oppressed groups. I think it's because God has has so many plans for these groups in this coming age. But right now, there's a great test, and the test is, can you overcome this wave of ideology that mm. would tempt you to bitterness and offense, that would, attempt you, that would tempt you to victimization and self-pity, that would tempt you, right, to division, right, all of these are in the, and we have to overcome in this season. I want to just add something to that, because I think one of the clear hallmarks of cultural Marxism, I know some people don't like that word, but it is what it is, right? The One of the hallmarks of cultural Marxism, because Marxism was built on, you know, the bourgeois and, you know, the proletariat, which is really, you know, it's a picture of the haves and the have-nots, Right. Right. So clearly there has to be this distinction. So one of the hallmarks of cultural Marxism is there always has to be an oppressed and an oppressor. That's, that's it, right? right? But when you really understand the end goal of what culture or what Marxism is, it's actually not about equality. It's actually to a, it, it actually brings us to a place where the oppressed becomes the oppressor. Right. So it's a never-ending cycle. Yeah. It's actually not a solution. It's a turnover. And so um, anyways, I just wanted to throw that in there. But I mean, I I completely agree, Dennis. I mean, I think and I want to say this also, too. You know, in times of prayer, I feel like God has shown me that um, there are many that may even have left leaning uh, tendencies right now, but they are also part of the remnant. And I believe God is even showing me that that um, that there is going to come a great awakening. You know what I mean? It's so much bigger than it's, this is what I tell our church. It's so much bigger than left versus right. It's actually about light and darkness. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great awakening that's going to happen. Um, yeah. It's good, yeah. Man. 
Dennis, I, I, I appreciate you, bro. You didn't pay me to say this, but I want to say something on your behalf real quick, if, that, if I may. But like, you know, Dennis, I know that you get many detractors and people that may have their own opinions and views of you. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but I just feel right now, I feel very compelled to say certain things. Um, Dennis, in the, in the couple of years that I've known you, I have actually watched you as a friend and as a bystander. I've seen you stand very uncompromised uh, in your views and in your beliefs and your convictions, and I respect you for that. But the second thing that I've seen about you is actually uh, you have not only remained unoffended, but you have handled opposition with utter class. And I just feel like I have to say that, Dennis. I really do because I, I, I've watched you, bro. I've watched the way that you deal with, you know, certain Facebook interactions. I've seen the way that you've dealt with, you know, conversations online and just different things. And, and, and one of the things that has always, if I could say it, just amazed me as I watch you is you have maintained a, I'll just say it, a, a, a godliness about yourself right? People may not agree with your viewpoints, but I've never seen you once go on the vitriol attack on anyone that brought that against you. And I just feel like I have to say that because I've seen it. And, and I want to just say that for what it is. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate that, brother. Yeah. yeah. Andy, I appreciate you a lot, man. I appreciate your words. Um, you know, Andy has called me a couple times just out of the blue and given me, you know, pretty specific words about, um, you know, things that God was doing in my life. And uh, those kind of people, man, you got to get yourself an Andy. I, I have I have mine, but, you know, you guys got to find your own Andy in your life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I joke about this, but you're kind of, you know, you're like our, our, our community's, you know, mini Bob Jones, you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I just say I'm, I'm thankful for you too, man. And, um, you know, I think the, the big thing is, you know, we, we both have a burden from the Lord that we feel is, um, is, is relevant for right now, right? And, um, you know, we both understand that there's uh, major difficulties to be overcome, um, but that the, the, the purpose of it is worth it, right? Yeah. And the glory that will be revealed through all of these hardships and difficulties and trials, it's going to be worth it. And, yeah. um, and so when I look forward to the future, I know hardships coming, but I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm so hopeful yeah. about what's coming. And in the same way that we were talking about, you know, uh, where we've come in worship and how far worship yeah. has come and just the experience of corporate worship and prayer. I, I feel like, you know, I, I don't feel like we're at the end of this. I feel like we're just beginning in this. Yeah. Yeah. Right, like, I man, in like fifty years, the the level of you know anointing and the depth of the presence that we're going to be able to be in all the time. I remember, sorry, I'm uh, belaboring this a little bit, but I remember when oh, I was a good. freshman in college, um, I would you know I would meet with God, and um, and it would be so great the times where I would really break through into the presence. And, um, and I'd be like, God, this is where, this is home. Home for me is your presence. Wherever you are, I, I just want to be there. Um, but sometimes it'd be so hard to break into the presence. Mm. And, then, and then a lot of times, you know, an hour after I finish, you know, my quiet time, I feel like empty, you know? <laughs> I feel like I have like, like, where did you go, you know? 
And I, I look back at that now, and I feel like I've come so far just in my ability to to, to maintain intimacy with the Lord. Yeah. The, I, it's much easier for me to enter into the presence of God, right? I look at that, how far I've come personally in 20 years, and I'm like, man, I'm I'm so looking forward to where I'm going to be 20 years from now of having wow. like that level of intimacy, of familiarity with his voice, right? Ability to, you know, understand his ways just, yeah. and that, that to me is the treasure. That's the treasure. Yeah. And I feel like it's not just for me, that's the treasure for the church. Like yes. where we're going is even though there is going to be increasing persecution, increasing hardship, but there's also going to be increasing grace an increasing presence of the Lord, an increasing ability to to commune with Him and fellowship with Him. You know, when we read the Book of Acts, it's not going to be like, man, how crazy was it like back then, right? It's going to be like, wow, you know, like we're, it's like it's like the Book of Acts, the times yeah. that we're living in, right? That that's what I'm I'm so excited for, right? Um, of everything that's coming, and so, you know. I'm hopeful, man, and um, I'm, I, I believe in people like you who are contending in the place of prayer. All the prayer warriors out there who get no, you know, nobody is, you know, praising them, and they're not getting any awards and anything like that, but they're the ones who, from my perspective, they're the ones who are laboring for the body of Christ, right, to come into her destiny, and mm. um, yeah, that's why I'm so thankful for you, bro. Likewise, Dennis. I appreciate you having me on this podcast, dude. Yeah. Well, thanks, Andy. We'll have to have you back on again, man. Absolutely. All right.